This is episode number one, two, four, with two-time cancer survivor and record-setting swimmer, Dean Hall. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. My name is Nick Carrier, lifestyle entrepreneur and fitness trainer. My goal is for you to gain more clarity on what the best version of yourself looks like, what the best version of yourself is capable of, and then to give you the tools, tips, and inspiration on how to make that person a reality. Today, I bring you part two of my interview with Dean Hall. In part one, you learned about his record-setting swims and everything he's overcome with the passing of his wife. And now in part two, you're gonna learn about his days as a clinical marriage and family therapist. You're gonna learn about the couple of biggest lessons that he learned from his own clients and how he's applied them to his own life. You're gonna learn about how the brain has to answer every single question it's been asked. This was probably my favorite part of the interview. You're gonna learn why every question has to be answered and why we need to be careful of what we're actually asking ourselves and so much more. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I'd recommend that you go back and listen to gain a little bit more context on Dean, but you'll be able to enjoy this interview even if you haven't nonetheless. But for now, it's time. It's time to work on getting closer to the best version of yourself today with Dean Hall. Something that I'm really interested to talk about it today is actually your work as a therapist. Um, I think that there's so much there that I could selfishly learn from, and that a lot yeah. of pe- that a lot of people listening could learn from. So I want to talk a little bit about that. And you, sure. you said you've do- done it over a little over three decades now. And we talked beforehand, which is one thing I didn't realize was that you did a lot of work with with sexual trauma, right? Um, and that thing. And you mentioned off podcast how. You've been doing it for so long, but a lot of people on average maybe spend like four to six years doing it and they just kind of get burnt out from it. So what was maybe one of your biggest struggles early on as a therapist that you had to overcome? Well, uh, probably uh, it's the only time in my life that I had kind of the imposter syndrome. Mm. I knew that I was walking into people's lives, which to me is sacred ground. And I'm just winging this baby, even though I had a master's and, and wonderful mentorship, I thought, oh my gosh, uh, I know so little. And so just being able to go and sit with people, but that's where I learned how important it is to be authentic. Mm. And so if I'd run up against something, which I often did early on, that I could not really handle and I didn't know what to do. I just say, hey, you know what? I'm new at this. Don't know, but I've got a brilliant mentor. Let me talk to him. I'll give you a call. And the thing that really impressed me is not only did people then feel more comfortable with me, but they had more confidence in me, Mm. uh, which I thought they'd have less because I didn't know what I was doing. So that that was very, very difficult. Yeah, I think that's really cool because like you said, it taught you to be authentic and it taught you to be honest. And I think that's the biggest takeaway for me is that that's what people trust. Right. And, and and so the phrase fake it till you make it is something that I don't really like. I think it definitely has a place, but I think a lot of people maybe in your situation if they were told fake it till you make it, will try to give their best advice to to people as a therapist as they think they can. And in that sense, they don't ask for help or they don't maybe 
do all the preparation or do all the study or do all the work that they potentially could because right. they try to fake it till they make it. But I think that's yeah. really cool that you made sure that you were authentic and you were honest with them. You're like, okay, I don't have the answer. I'll go get it for you from somebody who has a little bit more experience and then help you out. And like you said, it, it uh, ha- just built trust with uh, it built trust between between you two. So I think that's really cool. Yeah, yeah. I don't like fake it till you make it either. I I changed that to stay till it pays. Mm. Um, and if you just don't flinch and stay in and are honest in just about any situation, there will be incredible payoffs for you and the people you're working with. I like it. I like it. So as you were working with um, different like couples, I guess, and some families and stuff, was there any particular person or couple or group of people that you think you learned the most from because of their particular situation? I'm not asking who they were or what their of situation course, yeah, was, yeah, but sure. it was, was there any particular thing that you maybe learned most from a person or a couple? Yeah. Uh, early, I, I mean, I could give countless stories. I'm right. always learning from others. And uh, one of them was in, I'll just tell you two quick ones. Uh, the first one was an old guy named Saul who had built a shoe store empire. And he was one of my first clients and he had lost his wife. He was in his eighties and I think he was just lonely yeah. and he would come in and he'd, he would teach me and he uh, taught me brown shoe, black shoe. Have you ever heard this? No, yeah, I hadn't either. He, I asked him a question once and he's like, ah, oh, Dean, Dean, uh, you're asking me that question wrong. And I said, well, Saul, what do you mean? He's like, you know, I started my first store during the depression and I would walk up to people and I'd say, do you want to buy this shoe? And they'd say no. And then I realized they'd say no just to feel independent and like they had a brain in their head. But then I found out that if I walked up to them and said, would you like this shoe in the brown or the black? They would pick one of those. And so he says, you've always got to give people choices so that they can feel independent. And I thought, wow. And so he went up. I said, Saul, are you sure you want to come to me? I think you're helping me more than I'm helping you. And he's like, no, I love talking to you, Dean. And so uh, I learned a ton from him. And one of the things I learned from him, I already kind of had it, but it cemented for me, it doesn't matter how a person looks especially how old they are or uh, what they've been through. If they're older than you, they probably, unless they've been just a total uh, asleep in life, they've got some wisdom you don't have. And so I started trying to be around older folks and just picking their brain. And, and once I started doing that, I started learning so much. And I think our We've got such a youth-oriented culture. I think we lose the wisdom from uh, the older grandmas and grandpas. Mm. Yeah, so I learned a lot from him. The other guy, and this guy actually saved my life. He was working with me, and he was an executive, and he'd become, he'd retired. He was way up like a VP of a well-known corporation, and uh, he'd given that up. And as is true for most men, his generation especially, he was really depressed because he'd lost his identity. Well, 
I had been a teacher for 20 years in this community and I knew six of his grandchildren and they were the brightest, most wonderful kids imaginable. And so I just wanted to shake him and say, hey, you've got all this money, start taking your grandchildren around the world and having these fun times and, and talking and speaking into their lives. But I, I'm, I hesitated and I'm glad I did because I said, you just need a big dream, something that has the power to bring you back. And he said, okay. And he came back a couple weeks later and was really excited. And I, I said, he says, I found it, Dean. I found it. And I kind of sat back and smiled. I thought, okay, he's going to tell me he's rediscovered his grandchildren. And I said, what is it? And he said, I've decided I want to become one of the world's greatest wooden duck decoy carvers. <laughs> what? what the hell is that? Yeah. And, and, but I, I, I made sure not to laugh and I bit my tongue. And man, he went after this thing and started going around the world to the best wooden duck decoy carvers and learning from them. And within a couple of years, he was in the top 10 and showing me these wooden ducks uh, that he was making a thousand to five thousand dollars off a piece, and uh, before I left Kansas, I ran into him, and he said, "Dean, I want to show you some pictures." And I'd never told him what I thought, and he showed me pictures of him going around the world to these conventions, and each time he'd take one of his grandchildren. Uh. So it came full circle. So it was really cool, and it really brought him back to life. And if it hadn't been for that guy, when I was dying, I would not have probably thought of uh, and, and known firsthand how following a passionate purpose can, can bring you back to life. So I learned so much from him. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that takeaway from the second guy and the first guy too. I think the, the brown shoe, black shoe, black shoe, I never heard it phrased like that, but I've definitely learned that through my own experiences that you have to give people choices because yeah. that's like one of the things that I've realized in terms of booking people for, uh, as podcast guests yeah. is yeah. if you just ask somebody to be a podcast guest or you ask somebody to meet for coffee and you just leave it like that, you're never going to meet them or you're never going to interview them. You have to be like, here's a couple of times. Do any of these work for you? Sure. And and, and then it's going to actually going to happen. Cause that's what I, that's what I realized when people ask me now or ask me to like meet up or something like that. I'm like, either I'm going to give you a couple of times or, or give me a couple of times and then we'll make it happen. Otherwise it's never going to happen. I feel like, and, and I feel like so many times that, that has such a, a role in so many different people's lives too. I feel like as like a salesperson, mm-hmm. you have to give people a choice. If they have too many options, right. then it's too it's too much compl- complexity to where they're never going to actually take action and choose something. Exactly. They have to they have to have a couple of options so, like you said, they can feel like they're in control of it. Right, right, and it's extremely helpful in an intimate relationship. Mm. Uh, I found because, and this makes me sound a little OCD, but in order to sit for my licensure test, I had to have 2,000 face-to-face sessions. And once they got me counting, being an old jock, I, I just started keeping count. And this year, I passed 53,000. So awesome. I've done a little bit. And one of the things that's one of my favorite strategies with couples is what I call marital multiple choice. Mm. Go to your partner, especially if there's a little bit of conflict, and say, hey, rather than, hey, I want to do this, or I think we should do this. 
they're going to say no just out of principle. Mm. And so you go to them and say, you know, I've been thinking and I really want to honor and respect you. I want to be a good partner. So here are the options I've thought of, A, B, C. And, you know, D would be if you come up with an option that's even better for you, but I can sign off on it too. And that's so easy. It's such a simple technique. And the recipient usually feels very respected and honored because they, they've seen that you're not just trying to get your way, but you're thinking this thing through. It's one of the easiest relational hacks that can have huge benefits and I think reduce conflict by at least 80%. Mm, I love that. I, I, feel, I feel like that comes down to just like being super clear about kind of what it is you want. And if you're clear about it, then they, the other person knows like yes or no, because if it's, if it's too vague, it's, you don't really know yes or no to whatever it is they're offering or whatever it is right. that you're talking about. Um, so that's really cool. So you mentioned something earlier in the podcast, kind of early on about how the brain has to answer every question that you ask it. Right. I want you to, to expand a little bit more on that and talk about how we ask ourselves crappy questions and how we can stop that. Okay, sure. Yeah. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy says that underneath cognitive behavioral therapy is one of the most well-respected, highly regarded, highly researched forms of therapy. And the basic tenets of it are that when we end up in problems in our life with heavy emotions, those just didn't, you know, spring full blown out of the head of Zeus. They have, uh, they are generated. And so in cognitive behavioral therapy, it used to be that thoughts create feelings, feelings create actions. And then more recently, in the last 10, 20 years, it's been belief systems create thoughts, thoughts create feelings, feelings create actions. I go one deeper. I believe beneath the bedrock of your beliefs are questions that you've asked, that your beliefs are actually an answer to the questions you've been asking. The problem is we are asking ourselves hundreds, if not thousands of questions every day subconsciously. Uh, silly things like, what am I going to wear? Is this going to be a good day? Uh, does my wife still love me? Um, is my car going to turn on? Uh, does everybody think I'm cool in this car? I mean, just crazy, nonstop yeah. floods of hundreds of questions. And so the first thing I think you have to do, and this is where meditation or some kind of practice of silence and introspection is so important. You've got to be able to start tuning in and listening to what's actually uh, running through your brain all day long. So that's really step one is developing some practice where you're starting to listen in and tune in so that you can more easily identify the questions you're asking. Mm -hmm. And then when you start identifying it, rather than fight it or say, oh, I should be asking better questions or I'm such a slime ball or stupid for asking these questions, you know, berating yourself, which I see is a very natural reaction in our society is once we, we find out what we're doing, then we judge ourselves harshly. And if you can let go of judgment and just be more uh, observant and almost uh, scientific about your observations, then uh, you're really in a dynamic spot for learning. And so you start tuning in, 
noticing what they are, and even journaling them, uh, your most repetitive questions. And then transforming those questions. And one of the things that never, there are two things, Nick, that never failed me after my wife died and I would go to these time and time again. One of them is something I developed I call QTE or question transformation exercise. You identify the negative question that's making you so miserable because our bodies, I believe, are the ultimate feedback mechanism. And when we are feeling bad, it's usually our bodies trying to shift us back onto a good path rather than uh, we're just crazy. Yeah. Uh, that's why we feel anxious or depressed is because I believe it's the answer. Uh, those physical manifestations many times are the answer to a negative question we've been asking. And so you identify what that negative question is. And that's usually pretty easy to do because you've been asking it a hundred times that day. Yeah. Okay. And so I, I would write that down and then I would go to what I call a positive flip. I would try to reword that question in a positive way that's equally powerful for the positive as this negative question was. And many times when we're asking negative questions, it's victim-oriented questions like why me or what's going to happen now or, you know, something like that. So I flip, I think the magic word is how. I will go from why me to how can I handle this? Mm. Something. But we each, a lot of people don't understand it too, we each have our own highly specific dictionaries and the brain and the body respond to what I call juicy, delicious words. And Nick's juicy, delicious words are going to be different than Dean's. So I will write it and then I'll ask it with my eyes closed to see if my body responds. And if my body really likes it, then I will go to the next step. And I won't go through the whole thing, but I'll just tell you briefly. I think the big three, because uh, one of the, I've got too many degrees and too many majors, Nick. Um, <laughs> but one of them is in world history. And another one is in philosophy and religion. Okay. And so one of the things I know is that in all of the major world's religions and almost every culture ever known throughout the history of man, there have been three elements involved in just about every culture, except for a couple small tribal Amazonian cultures, and that's faith. There's always some kind of faith element, hope, and love. Those are the big three, and you never hear about those as natural sources of power. And so I am constantly asking myself, how am I doing in terms of my own faith practice? How much hope am I carrying and giving today? And how much love am I carrying, experiencing, and passing on today? Mm. Those, are how, those are my litmus tests because I think they're universal. They've always been and they always have been. They always will be, I believe. Yeah. And so uh, then I'll take that question and it's got to stay in question form. Because, again, you want to access that natural tendency, knee-jerk reaction. The brain has to answer it. So then I'll change my question from positive and add an element of faith to it. Uh, then I'll add an element of hope to it. Then I'll add an element of love to it. And the question that I end up with is just this beautiful gem. 
And then I'll go back to the original question. And it doesn't take a nuclear scientist to figure yeah. out the difference between the two. And that never failed me. Many times I'll journal this. And in my extreme grief, it would give my mind something to concentrate other than my grief. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The other thing that never failed me is preparing. I'd never heard about Wim Hof or the Wim Hof method or cold water immersion, but I knew the Willamette was going to be cold. And so I started taking ice baths just to prepare my body. And I started calling it poor man shock therapy. Um, I could be just miserable, have not left my uh, duplex for days, hadn't shaved for days, just totally miserable. Get in an ice bath, boom, I'm fine. I'm yeah. okay for about an hour or two. And uh, the oncologist also thinks that being hypothermic thermic in the Willamette for 22 days, 10 or 12 hours a day is what really healed my leukemia. And if you want a good read, uh, you should read Scott Carney's What Doesn't Kill Us. Uh, it's talking about uh, the research on cold water immersion. I'm now a huge fan. Uh, there's a group out of Phoenix called Morozko Forge. And Morozko is the Russian Jack Frost. And they sent me a cold water immersion tank uh, that's six feet long, and I keep it at 40 degrees, and that's how I start every day. And I'll spend about four or five minutes in this just brutal cold, and it boosts my immune system, it takes down all my inflammation, it boosts my metabolism, and then anytime I have a really hard workout, I'll go and spend 10 minutes or so in this, and it'll take down all the inflammation. I mean, I feel like I'm your age and I'm turning 60. It's one of the coolest things I've ever found. That's awesome. Well, that's great. I, that, some great stuff with, uh, with the ice bath. And I really liked the, um, your breakdown of, the, of being aware of the questions that you ask yourself. I think people need to honestly rewind and like listen to like that last five minutes of that again and, and take notes on it because I, I know I will. It's about because kind of you went through like the process of how you become more aware and how you can start flipping that. And I really liked the de distinguishing between the why question that you're currently asking yourself and how you can flip that to a how. Because I think when you flip it to a how, you take ownership of being able to reverse it. Exactly. And that's that's why I love listening to you, Nick. You're so quick. And you're not only quick at understanding it, but you're extremely adept at applying. Uh, that's That probably speaks to why you're in the position you're in. But yeah, you got it. You got yeah. it, man. And one of the things I want to offer your listeners is uh, they can find me on Instagram the most at any time under Swimming in Miracles. And uh, I would invite not only you, but them, anytime you have any question on anything I've discussed, DM me. I'm happy to take my time and uh, answer any question. If there's any way I can help somebody get it right and accomplish their dreams, man, I'm in. Well, I, I really appreciate that. I know everybody, um, make sure you go follow him, Swimming in Miracles on Instagram and swimminginmiracles.com, his website uh, and everything like that. Well, Dean, the last question I want to ask you is I believe that becoming the best version of yourself is a constant journey. I think we're always chasing down that best version of ourself. I don't know if we're ever there. Um, to me, I feel like 
I should never think I'm there because I don't want to get complacent and stop working towards him. Um, and I also believe it's a, a unique journey. I think we all have certain principles and certain lessons that we need to all apply. But I also believe that like the way I'm going to get to the best version of myself is going to be different than the way that you get to the best version of yourself. So with that being said, I want to ask you for you personally, if there are three things that you could currently do or three things that you could currently work on to get closer to the best version of yourself, that best version of Dean Hall, what were those three things that you could do be that you could do or that you could work on? Yeah. Uh, I'm constantly working on myself. One of the things that makes me sad is this next year in 2020, I'm turning 60, Nick. I don't know how it got there, uh, but I am officially an old man now, but I don't feel like it. As a matter of fact, one of the coolest things that's happened for me is I fell in love with a woman who's my age, and thankfully she looks about 10 or 20 years younger. Uh, but uh, she also is ex- super excited about life and building businesses and doing things at a time when most of our friends are settling down and just wanting to sit on a couch and watch TV or scroll through Facebook. Uh, we're getting more and more excited about our life. So one of the things that I'm constantly working at is uh, refuting ageism. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm not my 20-year-old self, even though I feel like it, but I just don't believe in limits. And I think we've been sold uh, a bunch of uh, uh, goods on, on this whole aging process. And so, and I think most of that is uh, our vision. If, if we still are dreaming dreams and trying to accomplish big things, no matter the age, it, it, it leads us to have an excitement for life that's gearing up rather than winding down. And so I think it's constantly important to push yourself to grow and say, okay, that was fun. But rather than just do that, how can I do something even bigger than that? Something even harder, something that stretches what I learned and applies it in even a bigger arena. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's one of the things I'm working on. The other thing that I'm working on is uh, biohacking. Uh, just finding ways to be even more intentional about what I ingest. One of the things that just cracks me up, and I'm always running these little experiments, right? Yeah. And uh, the last client, 23 clients that I've had that are on medication, I'll ask them, has your psychiatrist, the, the psychiatrist, and that's nothing against psychiatry, but they will just agonize over milligrams of antidepressants or psychotropic drugs, but they will never ask, what are you eating or drinking? Uh, The last 23 clients I've had, I've asked, hey, has your psychiatrist ever asked you what you eat and drink? Because they'll agonize over milligrams of uh, a drug, and yet we're ingesting kilograms of junk, which creates the brain chemistry. And so I'm really working on uh, being much more intentional at looking at food as only fuel and how can I super fuel my body so that uh, as a 60-year-old man, I can accomplish even bigger things. Uh, Because I won't tell you the name of it yet, but this next 
year as a celebration for my 60th year on earth, I'm planning on swimming a river that's 1,200 miles long, which will take me 90 to 110 days. Uh, So when I say I'm swimming next summer, I'm swimming all summer. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so I'm trying to, even though when most of my friends just want to sit and watch their, their grandkids or uh, the Golf Channel, nothing against grandkids or the Golf Channel, I love yeah. them too, but I'm trying to do something that maybe I wouldn't have known how or even had the guts to try when I was in my 20s or 30s. Awesome. And so awesome. I think that's really important. Cool. Well, I got it. Well, before before we leave, I want to make sure I acknowledge you. I think that it's so cool that now that you're that you're sixty, you still think so big, um, and I think that's just super cool and super unique. Um, and your and how when you made you swim, you made it so much bigger than than you. That's what you said. You're like when you were doing it, you're like. What is this really going to help if just this guy again in a speedo uh, go, goes and, and swims? This that's not going to help anything. But you're like, I want to make it bigger than me. I want to leave right. my daughter with something kind of to be proud of too. Um, and then, and then you also mentioned it, and during this during this last segment, how now that you're 60, you're still looking for a bigger, like a bigger purpose. You're always looking for that purpose to keep you alive. And keep you motivated, and keep you, and keep you driven, which I think is is so cool because so many people, like you said, at your age, are starting to settle settle down and aren't looking and seeking out for a bigger purpose. And that's probably when their health starts declining faster, their drive starts declining, and everything like that. So I just think it's super cool and super unique, and I'm I'm blessed to have been connected with you. Well, if you don't, I I am thrilled uh, just to hear you say that. That's a gift, Nick, because I I respect you and what you're doing so much. Uh, You're doing so much more than I believe I did at your (laughs) age. So I just can't wait to see what happens in your life. But let me leave you with this. I'm writing a book now that should, uh, I'm hoping to release it next spring before my swim. And I believe goal setting is good But there's uh, the name of my book, the working title is From Goal Setting to Soul Setting. And when you set a goal, a simple goal, uh, many times there's not a do or die life or death commitment to it. And then also it, it might not, it might be a goal that somebody else told you you should go after or you think would make you look like a big, important, powerful, successful person. And, and that's where goals fall short. I call it uh, leaping into the success of an empty life. I see that happen so many times with high performance and elite athletes. They've succeeded, but their life's still empty. The difference between that and soul setting is when you follow a dream that you're uniquely suited to, and it's so big that you're more excited about it than anyone else. And something inside you, inside you just says, man, I got to do this. Then when you do it, You inspire everyone else, but the coolest thing that happens is it's about service and it's about offering something to our world that's way beyond you. And if your goals are just about you for you, 
to uh, make you look better or make your life better, it's not enough. And so ask your heart, what would do the world more good? How could I do this so big that it's way beyond me? And when that's the difference between goal setting and soul setting, between uh, trying to accomplish something and following a crazy, wild, impossible dream. Mm. And the crazy, wild, impossible dream we're all capable of. Yeah. I, I love that. That was that's a heck of a way to finish. Well, Dean, when you come out with that book and before and before that swim, we'll have to have you back on the show so we can talk more specifics about that and about your the upcoming journey that you're gonna go on. I'd love that, Nick, because uh, I'm gonna be watching you till then. <laughs> well, I appreciate it, Dean. I really appreciate it. Have a great rest of your day. Okay, you too. Thanks so much. There you have it. I hope you enjoyed part two of this episode with Dean. Remember, if you haven't heard part one, you've got to go back to hear about his record-setting swims that he accomplished amidst his fight with cancer. If you enjoyed this episode, go send him a quick DM on Instagram at Swimming and Miracles. Dean is a huge fan of the show, and I know he'd love to hear your feedback on what you loved about the interview. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you go leave it a quick review on the Apple Podcast app or on iTunes. That'd be a great way for you to support the show and to ensure I can continue to bring great guests on like Dean. Remember to be careful of what you ask yourself. I think it's super fascinating that our brain, by its very nature, has to answer every single question that it's asked. While it's fascinating, it can be both to our detriment or to our benefit depending on how we use it. If we're intentional about rephrasing those questions from why to how, instead of being the victim and asking why am I this way or why did this happen to me, take ownership of the situation and ask, how can I use this to my advantage or how can I flip this situation on its head to make it a positive? And remember the lesson he told of brown shoe versus black shoe. In so many situations, whether it be you're trying to make a sale, you're trying to compromise with your significant other, or you're trying to decide where to go for lunch, give someone options. Give them this shoe or that shoe, this restaurant or that restaurant, this show or that show, because it always allows that person a feeling of being in control over the situation, and it gives them a sense of direction. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode with Dean. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast if you haven't yet already. Go ahead and rate and review the show. Share it with a friend to help grow this community that we're building. And most of all, start taking some action steps that allow you every single day to get a little bit closer and closer to your best you. Mm -hmm.